Welcome to Employed, a podcast about careers. Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, Employed is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and today we are speaking with Maggie, an air traffic controller. The year before I was transferred, I got to be the one to clear a flight of 149 planes for takeoff all at once. It's quite a sight to see them all get lined up on one runway (laughs) and then take off two or three at a time. Well, thank you so much, Maggie, for joining me today and coming on here to talk about what you do. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Maggie Passmore. I'm an air traffic controller in the Memphis, Tennessee area, and I'll probably just throw this out for um, legal purposes that any opinions and views expressed are my own and have no bearing upon the Federal Aviation Administration. (laughs) Tell everyone what got you interested in this field. How did you hear about it? When you're a kid, you know the options for careers are like firefighter and doctor and lawyer and and pilot is one of those that everybody knows and um, I got an opportunity when I was in the Girl Scouts to go into a plane and fly around in a little private plane so I thought that was really cool and then I wanted to be a pilot right when I was a kid but um, I've had issues with my ears not doing great in like pools and on airplanes for a long time since then. And so when I was in high school, I, uh, after realizing pilot was not going to be the greatest idea for me, I decided, well, there've got to be other jobs out there, you know, that are related to aviation. So that's when I started looking and realizing there was a lot more out there than I thought. And air traffic control sounded really cool and fun and right up my alley. So that's kind of, uh, I've wanted to do it for a long, long time. You, you kind of knew what path you wanted to take from a younger age. So how did you get to where you are? What, what did you have to go to school for and, and what kind of education experience did you have to get? Yeah. So at the time that I was graduating high school, uh, the options for working for the government as an air traffic controller were either to go into the military, and then when you come out of the military, you can apply for a job with the government, or you can, you at the time, uh, the other option was to go to a college that had a particular kind of program that was certified to filter people into air traffic control. So I went to a four-year college. I got a four-year degree in air traffic management. And let's see, it was three years after I graduated college that they actually took that requirement away and they started uh, allowing pretty much anybody to apply again. (laughs) So at this time, uh, anybody who's listening does not have to go to college or (laughs) anything like that. If you want to be an air traffic controller, you can certainly pursue aviation if that's something you're interested in, but you can also pursue literally anything else. And, uh, You can go on to the government website when they have an open bid. And I think as long as you're 18, uh, have a high school diploma or a GED or equivalent work experience, um, you can apply. And if you get uh, selected, they hire you on something of a temporary basis. You go to the FA Academy in Oklahoma City. You do your initial few months of training there. And if you pass that, you go to your facility. You do more on the job training for... Uh, normally the next 
two, maybe three years, depending on where you go. And uh, yeah, it's a long time before you can talk to a pilot without having somebody over your shoulder. And tell us a little bit about the academy. With it, there only being one academy, is it hard to get into? What does it look like actually being in the academy? Yeah, so the classes are relatively small just because there's only so many computer simulators uh, at a time. And there's only so many instructors that are there. You're getting one-on-one instruction anytime you're doing a simulation. Well, the classes that uh, I'm familiar with had like 18 people was the maximum. And I think it's a similar number for the other area of specialty. But yeah, it can be kind of a long shot to get into the academy because there are a lot of people these days that are going ahead and applying for the position just because it's wide open to pretty much anybody at this point. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, they, um, it can be kind of like a, you know, you've won the lottery if you get that call to go to the academy. (laughs) And what are the demographics of your field, specifically age and gender? So the workforce is about 80 to 85% male. Wow. Uh, it's a very male dominated industry. It always has been. And of course, the age um, can range anywhere from, like I said, 18 up to 56, which is the mandatory retirement age. Plenty of people retire before that. You're eligible long before, usually eligible long before uh, you're mandatory. I would say that most of the youngest controllers, though, are in their early 20s. I don't think I've met an 18-year-old or traffic controller yet, (laughs) although I've heard of a couple. (laughs) Is this a myth? I've heard that there's a lot of turnover in this field because it's so high stress. There is allegedly a lot of stress. There is not high turnover. Okay. Um, When people get hired to be air traffic controllers and they make it to the facility and they completely, we call it checkout, but they completely certify at the facility you generally don't leave um, at that point. So the turnover that maybe you've heard about actually happens prior to becoming what we call a CPC, a certified professional controller. So in those few years that you're working and you're doing on the job training, that's when you lose those people because they're either not performing in a way that their trainers want them to, or they're not passing tests or, or something like that. Um, so yeah, at the academy itself, in those first few months, it's much more rigorous actually at the academy than it is at most facilities. And uh, you can absolutely fail the academy. And unfortunately, the failure rate can be really high. Um, so that might be the turnover that you're talking about. But yeah, once you get hired by the government, and uh, you pass that probation period, <laughs> there's, uh, there's not a lot of turnover, not a lot of people quit the job. It's a good one. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Can you kind of give a range of salary that people can typically expect to make? Yeah. So if you're working for the government, if you go digging just a little bit um, and you're more interested, you can find the pay band. Uh, because it's public information. (laughs) Um, And it does change every year. Usually get a raise almost every year of some sort, whether it's just a locality raise, even uh, for cost of living expenses. I would say at my point in my career, I've been uh, an FAA employee for six years. 
And it was last year that I started making six figures. So it really doesn't have to take that much time. The salary that you get is dependent upon what type of facility you're at, how much traffic there is. There are levels, one through 12, and the government contracts out towers that are usually below a six. So if you're working for the government, you're going to be at a six or above already. So that's where I was when I started, was at a six and fully checked out. You're still at a level six, going to make probably 75 to 85, just with random overtime and differentials that they add for working nighttime or on Sundays. And then, yeah, you can transfer to a busier facility at your request, and that can take some time like it did for me. <laughs> I, uh, I was in Illinois at first. It's very cold there. <laughs> I didn't have much choice about being there. But uh, when I got the chance, I, I applied to go to a warmer locale. That's what okay. I'm doing in Memphis, Tennessee, and also to a, a higher level facility. And when I got transferred, that's when I got the big raise. The facility levels, you said one through 12, is that basically kind of like the size of the airport? Is that kind of how they range or what do those numbers mean? So they have some sort of fancy matrix that they use (laughs) to determine the level of the facility. Um, It's based off of mostly the number of aircraft um, that are flying through the airspace and the complexity of the type of traffic you're getting. So if you're getting, say, 100 airplanes, but they're all spaced out and they're all going one direction, that would be a lot of aircraft, depending on the size, but not a lot of complexity. So that gives you an example of volume versus complexity in air traffic. So if you think about um, the New York City area, it's, it's infamous for being the most difficult type of controlling because they have so many busy airports in a very, very small area. So everything is like a ballet up there. <laughs> and if you, if you have one person who ends up not landing and has to go around, it's a really big deal. And it takes a lot of extra skill to resolve something like that compared to a lot of other facilities where it's not that bad. Right. But, uh, right. There are definitely plenty of level 12 facilities and a lot of opportunity to, uh, Test yourself if that's what you want to do. <laughs> Thank you for painting a good picture on that. Sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, so if you guys touch on the work hours a little bit, what what are the work hours generally like? So air traffic control typically is a 24-hour deal at a lot of facilities. Not every facility. Some of the smaller ones do close at night, but there's always somebody <laughs> looking after that airspace, even if certain controllers go home at night. So We have morning shifts, afternoon shifts, and midnight shifts. Not everybody is going to be doing a midnight shift every week necessarily, although some are. It's kind of a choice that you make when you sign up for your schedule. So you have an idea the next year what your schedule is going to look like. And typically in the facilities I've been to, what they try to do is extend your weekend a little bit if they can, which means that when you're coming in on your Monday, it's going to be an afternoon shift. So you have kind of the morning off, you come in in the afternoon, and then um, you have two or three days of afternoon shifts, and it switches then to a morning shift. 
And if you happen to have a midnight shift that week, it'll be at the end of the week so that you get kind of the rest of your Friday off. So it can be kind of grueling. That's not really the best for a sleep schedule. In yeah. fact, uh, <laughs> lots of sleep experts are are probably really frustrated by our traffic controllers because we think that we like our long weekends and our extended hours on the weekends, but it's really terrible for our health. <laughs> do you do you feel like those hours create a good opportunity for a work life balance? Have you found any challenges there? It's definitely different from a nine to five, mm-hmm. but there are certain perks to being able to grow, go to the grocery store on a Wednesday morning, you know, so you can absolutely find a work-life balance, but I think that a lot of times your life part of your balance has to be more accommodating in terms of (laughs) when people are willing to hang out and what they're willing to do. And, um, So yeah, I think that there can be a lot of benefits and you can certainly get to a point in your career where you have the seniority to choose better schedules. How many hours do you think you typically work a week? So there's some pretty strict restrictions for controllers about how much we're allowed to work. Typically a controller will work a regular 40 hour week. At understaffed facilities, it's common to have an entire shift of overtime. So you're working six days a week instead at particularly high-strung and understaffed uh, facilities. They might be working 60 hours a week, but that's the absolute maximum. You can't go above that. So can you walk me through an average day from the time you arrive to work to the time that you leave? So prior to COVID, since I'm still in like the very initial stages of training at my new facility, my day is pretty boring because I just report to the training department um, rather than the control room. But once you do start on the job training or just as a regular controller, you start with a weather briefing every day and then you take a trip to control room to see if anybody needs a break. You know, that's how you're morning starts, you get the information you need and you start, you sit down, you start working. Usually if you're taking over for somebody uh, each time during the day, you have to review what we call status information areas. And that'll have information about runways in use, uh, any equipment that isn't working, active military areas, spacing instructions to major airports, things like that. And then the controller who's already working gives you a rundown about what the current aircraft are doing. And then you plug in, they unplug, and it's a seamless transition there. Usually don't work any longer than about two hours uh, sitting there talking uh, before you get a break. Then you just repeat after your break is over, you come back and you do the same thing all over again, see if anything's changed. Um, see if anybody needs a break. And if you're training, there's somebody sitting right next to you the whole time, listening to everything you're saying and watching everything you're doing. (laughs) If you are training, they'll do a debrief at the end of the, at the end of the shift where you go over your strengths and your weaknesses and write up a report. And that's part of what keeps track of your progress during training. 
can you give sort of a, a basic job description of what the air traffic controller is trying to accomplish, what, what their job actually does for the pilots? So what they drill into us when we start this job is that your number one priority is the separation of aircraft. Your number two priority, but also just as important, is to do that as efficiently as possible. So, um, you know, it might be easier to just keep everybody on the ground. That keeps everyone separated, but at some point you have to let them go. <laughs> so as an air traffic controller, you're trying to find a balance between, and especially individually as an air traffic controller, you're trying to find that balance of how much can I handle uh, safely? And as soon as you hit your limit, hopefully five minutes before that, you asked for help. And I mean, you said when I, when I said it's a high stress job, you said, allegedly, do you, do you feel like you're, you're not really feeling a lot of stress during that time? You said it's a lot of muscle memory. I, I don't know. What, what are you generally feeling during those shifts? There's a lot more time when I'm not stressed than when I am. Uh, what usually happens, I think, when people think of it as a stressful job is they've seen a movie where it's really, really busy. And there are some places where it's really, really busy from the time you walk in to the time you walk out. And there are certain days um, at every facility where it's going to be like that. Even when I was working at a much lower, lower level facility, my first facility in Rockford, if we had say a day where there was a lot of weather mm -hmm. and that weather happened to end in our airspace, well, you're going to have a lot of aircraft now that are going through your airspace that normally wouldn't. And so it might be busy from the time you walk in to the time you go home and that's unusual. And then it goes back the next day to being absolutely nothing. But yeah, I'd say for the most part on a typical day, you're going to have mostly not a lot of stress and bursts of all of a sudden there's a lot more going on. <laughs> and so it's kind of, you have to be ready for those zero to 60 moments. Yeah, definitely. So can you kind of share maybe a really good experience? Is there a memory that stands out that just lets you know that you really were in the right job and that this is exactly what you wanted to do? I think that probably, and I, maybe almost any controller would agree with me that like finally getting like fully certified and not having somebody standing behind you yeah. all the time is like a really validating moment in your career until you get to that point. You never really know if you're gonna make it, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. you're never really sure because you haven't gotten there yet. So that's, that's something that kind of helps, you know, like, yeah, I, I can do this and now, now I will do it. But I mean, as far as uh, positive things, there's, there's a lot to be said for, you know, coworkers and people who are going through the same thing that you are every day. They, everybody's got a wacky schedule. Mm -hmm. Everybody's, you know, got those moments when, things got really, really busy, really, really fast. And you just kind of all trying to help each other out. So even though sometimes it can be stressful and even frustrating, um, depending on if you're dealing with somebody difficult that day, you know, there, there's definitely those little positive moments. And then there are, there are other days that are just kind of exciting when I worked, uh, at 
My first facility, it was a tower at an airport and we had an air show that was happening right there on our airport. Uh, so you kind of sit back and you just get a really good view. We invited our families, had like a cookout. It was awesome. <laughs> just to be right there and have the best yeah. view of everything. <laughs> it, was, it was great. Got to watch the Blue Angels fly right by, you know. And then I guess on the other end, what what's maybe a hard day that sticks out or what's a challenge that you would frequently face at work? So that's an interesting question. I think anybody uh, listening could probably come up with like, their own horror story version of what a bad day would be like for an air traffic controller. And like, that's valid. Whatever horrible thing you can think of, yes, you're you're right, that's a bad day. And so I'm not gonna recount in detail like my worst day, but it it is really hard to see a plane go down. Um, I think most controllers try to tune out that idea um, that they're like, all these people on the planes. Um, But you don't really forget the gravity of what you're doing. Other than that, (laughs) um, you know, just troubleshooting technology, especially technology that breaks a lot and is really old. And, you know, working with people who are by definition control freaks, it's a very interesting environment for sure. Is there maybe a really weird or just very unexpected experience, something that's happened like that? I think something that your everyday person wouldn't expect, and maybe even a lot of controllers um, haven't thought about is, uh, so my first facility is a place called uh, Rockford Tower in Northern Illinois. Every year, there's this huge air show in Wisconsin, about two hours north of there by car. It's called Oshkosh. Tons of pilots who fly, you know, the smaller aircraft, they'll fly up there in their planes and they camp out all around this lake that's right there by the, this little airport. And they watch the air shows, which go on like every day for a week. It's a really big deal in aviation. Now, Rockford Airport is something of like a staging area for this big group of pilots who all fly the same type of little aircraft. It's called a Bonanza and they call it the Bonanza fly-in. And so we have hundreds of these little Bonanzas flying in over the course of a couple of days. And then um, once they're all there, the following day, they all fly out as a single formation flight. So the year before I was transferred, I got to be the one to clear a flight of 149 planes for takeoff all at once. And it was, uh, it's quite a sight to see them all get lined up on one runway (laughs) and then take off about two or three at a time. (laughs) And just, they create this huge line of planes just extending for dozens of miles. (laughs) Do you feel like this job makes you think differently about like getting on an airplane or flying? Has that, has that affected your, your desire to travel? It hasn't necessarily affected my desire to travel. It's affected my desire to go skydiving. I have no interest (laughs) in skydiving. Um, after having worked skydiving planes. So, you know, if anybody was on the fence about that one, 
it's not my favorite type of aircraft to talk to. <laughs> but no, as far as travel, I just I think it's really interesting now when I when I do travel by plane to have that extra knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes. Really, most people, even if they realize that there are air traffic controllers, they think that they're all working in a tower. When you explain that, like, no, the tower people are only working the planes that are landing and taking off, and there's a bunch of people, you know, in dark rooms <laughs> that are controlling everything else in between, they kind of go, oh, I guess that makes sense. But, you know, it's one, it's something that you just don't think about. So it's kind of cool to know. And I've gotten the chance as a controller to be able to uh, fly in the cockpit and see what that side of things are like. And of course, there's a lot more going on up there than the typical traveler realizes as well. So it's really cool to have those extra little pieces of the puzzle. And, um, you know, it makes me better at my job to know uh, what they're doing as well. And after I talked to the pilot, I mentioned this as well, just so many moving parts. It's incredible that it, I mean, for the most part, feels pretty seamless for travelers. I mean, it's one of the things that I think that in the aviation industry in the United States, we're always like really, really proud that we have the busiest airspace in the entire world. And it is also the safest airspace in the entire world. Why, why do you think that is? What do you think contributes to that? I think that a lot of it has to do, well, probably partially with technology, even though I mentioned earlier that a lot of it, you know, is old and it, it does fail sometimes, but we have redundancies set up in case something does fail. There's a big emphasis on, on teamwork. You know, if somebody's struggling or having a hard time, you, you don't think about why they're struggling or if they set themselves up for that, you just go and you fix the problem, whatever it is. And then, yeah, I do think that um, just the type of training that we do get and continue to get year after year <laughs> to be reminded of the most important things and to be shown maybe a couple of unfortunate bad examples of how we can all improve. You know, it might be tough to swallow, but um, it's really important to be reminded of uh, things that we can do that are better. Do you feel like you have any advice for anybody who might be interested in pursuing a, a career? I think that even though it's open to anybody, I personally benefited from having some instruction prior to um, attending the academy. It helps to be familiar with the vocabulary. Um, There's a certain way that you have to talk when you're on the radio. You can't just say whatever you want, whenever you want. And so to have that prior knowledge going in, that's one less thing that you have to learn while you're there. But I saw plenty of people just in my class who had zero aviation background whatsoever, not just that they hadn't gone to college for air traffic control, but they weren't pilots. They didn't know anybody in aviation. You know, we had a guy who worked at Starbucks, you know, (laughs) and, and, um, 
you know, anybody can be successful. I think, honestly, that confidence is a huge thing um, when you're getting through the academy, which is probably one of the more grueling parts of the process. It's a very condensed, very high stress environment because you can, they call it wash out. You can wash out, you can fail. And then, you know, it's, it's done, it's over. And so if you can drum up some confidence, if you can find any way to do that, whether for me, you know, that was going to college and having that prior knowledge for other people, it's just going to be remembering that life goes on, (laughs) whether or not you pass. (laughs) Yeah, the confidence. And I think it takes a lot of focus. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, I could never do that, or that's not for me. And I think that's certainly true. It's not for everybody, but I think it's for a lot more people than uh, everyone thinks it is. Thank you to Maggie for donating her time to the show. Follow us on Instagram at Employed Podcast. And if you are interested in becoming a future guest, please visit employedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 